Chapter 3 The Man Who Taught Them How to Fight Back The Christians suffered false charges in silence until the deft convert Justin gave them skill with words, then paid for it with his life. Marcus Cornelius Fronto was not a man whose views could be taken lightly. The lawyer, senator, friend of Caesar, tutor of the future emperor Marcus Aurelius, when he described the Christian sect, what he said was regarded as authoritative by those who mattered. And to Fronto, the Christians were repulsive. He sketched their customary ritual. On an appointed day, he said, they gather at a banquet with people of either sex and every age, most of them relatives. There, after full feasting, when the blood is heated and the drink is inflamed passions of incestuous lust, a dog, which has been tied to a lamp, is tempted by the morsel thrown beyond the range of its tether. It bound forward with a rush. The light is upset and is extinguished, and in the shameless dark, lustful embraces are exchanged. All alike, if not in act, yet by complicity, are involved in incest, as anything that occurs by the act of individual individuals results from the common intention. What lent credence to Fronto's description were the things other Romans could see and hear of these Christians. Though they lived in the midst of other people, they were indeed a community unto themselves. Their central rite, which they called Thanksgiving, the Greek word for it was Eucharist, was veiled in secrecy. It was a meal of some kind which only full members could attend. The most appalling stories of, were, were told about it. They actually consumed, it was said, the blood and body of their founder. This would be the man Jesus, whom they called Christ. He was crucified at Jerusalem back in the days of Tiberius on some, some sort of sedition charge. There was talk of their reenacting his crucifixion at each session. So, like the disgusting Druids, for all anyone knew, these Christians might well be practicing human sacrifice. They appear apparently also practiced cannibalism, and to this must be added incest, for they spoke of loving their brothers and sisters, which with everything that implied. Yet they could not be called crafty or deceptive. In fact, they were gullible fools. The worshippers that crucified of that crucified sophist Jesus, wrote the pagan writer Lucian, could easily be bilked by a few confidence men. They set so little store by their possessions that if any charlatan or trickster able to profit by it, came among them, and quickly acquired sudden wealth by imposing upon these simple folk. Finally, and beyond all that, their community even within itself appeared to lack all proper respect for things like title, social status, education, gender. They did not seem to realize that any society must be structured. They treated one another as equals, sometimes even their slaves. It was shocking. Small wonder Christianity held such an appeal to the lower class, and of course, silly women. Small wonder, too, that responsible people of rank, senators, and statesmen saw their ideas as a threat. They were. How long could Rome last if fantasies like this took hold? Apart from this implicit threat to social order, however, it's improbable that the Roman aristocracy, the great patrician families, much cared about the perceived ex excesses of Christian worship. Even Fronto's celebrated depiction of them, says his biographer Edward Champlin, was probably no more than a passing reference used to illustrate the superstitions imported by the bizarre mix of races flooding into Rome as the empire grew. Along with the grotesque sorceries of these Christians, there were the depraved sacrifices of the Druids brought from Gaul, as well as the wine-grade contortions of the worshippers of Bacchus from Greece, likewise prohibited and likewise practiced. It, practiced. 
the legalistic gymnastics of the Jews, the stargazing lunacies of the Chaldean astrologers. However, the really grave offense of the Christians, the one for which they could they would be expelled, enslaved, and executed, was their atheism, that is, their effrontery in denying Rome's twelve gods within the very walls of the city. Did the Roman leadership, drawn from the patrician class and later the army, actually believe in these gods, these stern personifications of sterner virtues, their auguries, and demanding rituals? Probably not, but they very much believed in what they represented. Patrician philosophy, or philosophers of the first century BC, like Varro and the more famous Cicero, would have thought such a question naive. After years of study, Varro deemed civic gods and goddesses worthy of compulsory devotion, not because they existed, but rather because they reinforced civic values. As Cicero averred, without piety, good faith, and justice cannot exist, and all society is subverted. This was not cynicism. The Romans believed that their city was ascendant by a divine will, and that its rule was for the good of all. They were not conquering the world, they were liberating it. So perhaps it was not such a leap for the Senate, the upper legislative house of Roman patrician families, to make Julius Caesar a god in 42 BC, the year after his death. He was already worshipped in the East, after all, and had not the very and had not the very heavens saluted him with a blazing comet, later known as Halley's, during his funeral rites. Temples were built, and a priesthood enlisted. Even legal oaths, it was declared, uh, could be taken by taken by the genius or immortal guiding spirit of Caesar. Julius Julius's successor, Caesar Augustus, was declared god, but only in the provinces. The Romans were grateful to him for having ended a half-century of civil war and inaugurating the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, a new era of prosperity. Ironically, the first Caesar to assert unqualified divinity for himself was the degenerate Gaius, nicknamed Caligula. Degenerate or not, this imperial god, too, was supported by Rome's upper class. Though unconvinced by imperial deification, they saw the oath to divine emperors as a loyalty chest to Rome itself, and it was therefore enforced on pain of death. Since Roman religion buttressed the state, foreign religions were regarded as undermining it, particularly those with secret rites whose deity was a jealous god that forbade oaths to Rome's own deities. Christians, therefore, could be charged with atheism at any time. However, a crackdown was most likely during plagues, famines, or military defeat on the emperor's frontier, empire's frontiers. At such times, most Romans would make offerings to, to propitiate their gods. Christians not only refused to participate, but some seemed to welcome any catastrophe as a sign of the Messiah's imminent return. The response to their re recalcitrance was often mob fury. Let these non-believers themselves become a sacrifice to the gods in the public arena, people raged. So farmers would denounce their neighbors and bring them before the magistrates. The accusers would be asked to burn a pinch of incense to the divine emperor, or sometimes take an oath on his genius. Refusal brought instant conviction and sentence. Some were asked, Christianus, eh? Are, are you a Christian? An affirmative answer amounted to a guilty plea. Not until 250, under Decius, did the empire as a whole attack the Christians systematically. The earlier sporadic persecutions were nonetheless terrifying. Christians could live in undisturbed peace for years, then suddenly be confronted with sheer horror. The threat of arrest was always there, 
After all, though they might meet in secret, they live, for the most part, in full view of their neighbors of the, in the empire's most populous cities. It was there, of course, that the first evangelists could find the biggest audiences. By 80, 80 or 90, there were already Gentile Christians living in Rome. And by the middle of the second century, their numbers appeared to uh, approach 30,000. Enough to support an impressive professional staff of 150 presbyters, priests, plus deacons, and full-time visitors, they could hardly be called an underground church. As city folk, they are mostly artisans, tent makers, cloth dealers, laborers, slaves and servants, potters, plasterers, masons, and tavern keepers. They also included people of wealth and station. Their early writings reveal a sophistication found only among the educated classes. Their preaching in the marketplace, their mixed gender services, their care for the sick, all in the tightly packed living conditions of Rome, inevitably drew attention, much of it scornful. Their children were taunted by other children. Christians were ridiculed in graffiti, like the ones like the ones still there on Palatine Hill, showing a man standing before a crucified donkey over the words, Alexamenus worships his god. The rumors of their sexual excess lay in sharp contrast to the facts. Many took Paul's advice and became celibates, vowing they would never marry. Divorce was disapproved among the Christians. So was the remarriage of widows. Some observers, like the second-century pagan physician Galen, wrote admiringly of them. They include not only men, but also women, who refrain from cohabiting all their lives, and also number individuals who, in self-discipline and self-control, have attained a pitch not inferior to that of genuine philosophers. Fidelity and chastity in marriage were still ideals in imperial Rome, respected if not observed, but Christians practiced them so conspicuously and universally that they became hallmarks of their faith. They similarly distinguished themselves by their, by their support for the needy, the sick, the widows, and orphans, and they consistently networked. The wealthier employed the needy, preferred their brethren in business, and opened their houses as meeting places, adorning the walls with frescoes and the floors with mosaics showing communion loaves, chalices, praying figures, and such symbols of Christ as lambs and fish. Christians were their own mutually, mutual aid of society that transcended class. They distanced themselves from their neighbors in other ways. Most refused to attend the gladiatorial games and, or use imperial coins that proclaim the emperor a god or teach school, lest the syllabus required retelling the body shenanigans of pagan deities. They shunned the theater for the same reason, along with sculpture and painting, and they denounced rampant homosexuality within the public baths. A Christian had to be careful in business, where contracts were sealed with oaths to deified emperors. Where they refused to do things everybody else was doing, they also took part in activities that excluded others. They attended worship services and study groups in the evenings that sometimes lasted until dawn. So they were strange people, and since most of them were converts, they stood in marked contrast not only to their neighbors, but also to their former selves. As one of them wrote, We who formerly delighted in fornication now embrace chastity alone. We who formerly used magical arts dedicated ourselves to the good and unbegotten God. We who valued above all things the acquisition of wealth and possessions now bring what we have into common stock and share with everyone who is in need. We who hated and destroyed one another and on account of their of their different customs would not live with men of a different race now since the coming of christ live on excellent terms with ter with them and pray for our enemies 
The author of these words was Justin, a newcomer to Rome, a Christian convert from the East, who arrived in the city about, 100, about year 150 and was destined to make a profound difference in the attitude of the Christian community there. For until Justin, the Christians generally suffered in silence the abuse that was so widely heaped upon them, or they would merely complain like the Bishop of Antioch. Godless mouths falsely accuse us, the God, godly who are called Christians, saying that our wives are the common property of all, and indulge in, promiscu in promiscuous intercourse. That further we have intercourse with our own sisters, and that, most godless and cruel of all, we taste human flesh. But Justin did not merely complain. Justin fought. He was a lethal debater. And with the devastating artistry on public platforms everywhere, he preached the Christian message and declared the Christian case. In the end, he would pay for his eloquence with his life. But some listened, and the seed took root. Ancient Israel's last president, the giant Kokhba's nine-fingered army, defies Rome until his temper foils him. He was so power—he was so powerfully built, it was said, that he could snatch from the air huge stones hurled against him by Roman catapults, and then fling the boulders back at his attackers. According to another tale, he found the strongest and fiercest man for his rebel army by proclaiming that only those who severed one of his own their own fingers were eligible, and thousands, eager to serve at his command, willingly passed the painful test. He and his nine-fingered men led a highly successful revolt against the Romans for nearly four years, setting up efficient Jewish administrative centers deep within the Roman Empire, and even minting coins proclaiming independence for the Jewish state. He fell from grace, taking the Jews with him because he killed a holy man in a fit of temper, and he died on the coils of, the giant, of a giant snake. That's some of the mix of fact and legend surrounding Simon Bar Kokhba, also known as Simon Bar Goziva, Shimeon Bar Koshba, or Shimeon Ben Kosiba. He is credited with leading the spectacular Second Revolt of the Jews against Rome, beginning in AD 132 and continuing to 135. Much of his history is uncertain, and if not clearly mythical, and until the middle of the 20th century, there was considerable doubt about whether he had lived at all. Yet lived he lived he did, as was revealed by astonishing discoveries in caves near the Dead Sea in the 1950s, when archaeologists came upon some 35 documents dating from Bar Kokhba's time, including a number of letters written by Bar Kokhba himself, describing him as president over Israel. The contents of the letters are unremarkable, dealing with such things as ownership of a cow and the shipment of wheat. None mentions any specific battle, and they are all undated. But when Yigil Yadin, an archaeologist, archaeologist whose expedition turned up the letters presented photos of them to Israeli Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion in 1960. Members of the Knesset and the cabinet who were present were at first struck dumb. Then, Yadin recalled, the silence was shattered by spontaneous cries of astonishment and joy. That evening, the national radio interrupted its scheduled program to broadcast news of the discovery. Next day, the newspapers came out with banner headlines over the announcement. This was not just another archaeological discovery. It was the retrieval of part of a nation's best heritage. Most contemporary sources now see Bar Kokhba rebellion as having been provoked by unendurable pressure applied to the Jews by the Roman Emperor Hadrian. When he took power in AD 117, Hadrian seemed to sympathize with Judaism and was even said to have promised the Jews that they could rebuild the Jerusalem Temple of old by Roman forces in AD 70 
probably for political reasons, and possibly under the influence of Jubadian Roman historian Tacitus. However, Hadrian changed his mind, enacted a law against castration that forbade for circumcision as well, began deporting Jews, and started construction of a new city, Aelia Capitolina, on the old Jewish Jerusalem site, with a temple to the pagan god Jupiter, where the Jewish temple had once stood. The rebellion simmered for years, erupting full force in 132, when Barcook was organized a guerrilla army that may have numbered as many as 100,000 men, and began seizing towns and territory. Eventually, the rebels held some 50 strongholds in Palestine, along with 984 towns and villages, including, according to some but not all accounts, Jerusalem itself. In this, Bar Kokhba was aided by the much admired Rabbi Akiva, who became his armor-bearer and proclaimed himself the Messiah. Bar Kokhba fought the Romans for three and a half years, and according to the Jewish Talmud, became so convinced of his own powers that he arrogantly ordered God to stay out of his affairs, demanding, The Lord of the universe neither help us nor hinder us. Bar Kokhba had strong religious support from the sage Eliezer, his uncle, who sat in sackcloth and prayed continually. When the Romans learned of Eliezer's role in boosting the rebels' morale, they dispatched an agent to the city of Betar. There, the agent publicly approached Eliezer and pretended to whisper something in his ear. Bar Kokhba's men, of course, seized the agent, who falsely told them that Eliezer was about to be about to hand the city over to Rome. Enraged, Bar Kokhba confronted Eliezer, dismissed the holy man's denial of the accusation, and kicked him so hard that Eliezer died. Batar fell to the Romans shortly afterwards, and the rebellion with the slaughter of the estimated 580,000 Jews. The blood that flowed was said to be so heavy that it rose to the level of the horse's nostrils and coursed from Batar Batar into the Mediterranean Sea with so much force that it carried boulders along with it. For their part, the Romans lost so many of their own that when the emperor reported his victory to the senate, he omitted the traditional, I and the army are well. Bar Kokhba was killed beheaded by the by the Romans in some accounts, strangled by a giant snake in others. With the now leaderless revolt put down, Hadrian plowed Jerusalem under and clamped down even more tightly on Judaism, barring Jews from, enter, from the entire region of the Holy City, forbidding not only circumcision, but the study of the Torah, the keeping of the Sabbath, and even the making of any Jewish calendar. Bar Kokhba's defeat marked the end of Jewish hopes for an independent state for almost 2,000 years writes Rabbi David E. Lippmann in his essay, The Bar Kokhba Revolt. We didn't have our own country again until May 14, 1948, when the modern state of Israel was proclaimed in the Middle East. The rebel leader's followers had changed his actual name, Bar Kokhba, to Bar Kokhba, meaning son of a star, underlining their conviction that he was the Messiah. But in Jewish tradition, he is denied such a title, for the Messiah is still to come. Born about the year 100 of pagan parents in the Roman colonial city of Flavia Neapolis in Palestine, ancient Shechem in Samaria, Justin was to live under three emperors, Trajan, Hadrian, and Antonius Pius, and to die under a fourth, Marcus Aurelius. The son of well-to-do farmers originally from Italy or Greece, he demonstrated from his youth a love of philosophy and a zest for debate, not in the tendentious style of the Roman schools, but rather debate as the means to know the truth, to which Justin meant to know God. So by arguing, by, so by arguing, he searched, and his search is recounted in one of his three surviving works, 
The Dialogue with Trifo. I put myself first into the hands of Stoic, he writes, seeking through the austere, impersonal, morally principled philosopher of Stoicism as an avenue to truth. But after studying with him for some time, I got no further, res further with respect to God, for he did not know himself, and he was continually saying that this learning was not necessary. Next, he sought out a peripatetic, a discipline, a disciple of Aristotelian philosophy, so namely be named because of Aristotle's habit of walking about as he taught. But his new teacher's preoccupation with tuition fees persuaded him he was not a philosopher at all. Still, Justin was not discouraged. Philosophy continued to sound, for him, a special note of supreme excellence. He then approached the Pythagorean of great reputation, who told him that he must first learn music, astronomy, and mathematics. But at, just at this point, a Platonist philosopher arrived in Flavia Neapolis and took him as a student. Plato enchanted him. I was quite enraptured with the perception of immaterial things and the cont contemplation of ideas added wings to my intelligence. And at last he found himself on the brink of knowing the good. Then it happened. He met an elderly man who was a Christian. Oh, well-schooled in philosophy, the old Christian deftly laid bare a major weakness in the approach of Plato's followers. The soul they held could achieve union with God only in dreams, which the dreamer could not remember later. What's the use of that? The old man asked. There could be none, and he cited the axiom that neither God nor nature ever did anything without purpose. So the platonic union with God must be false. If man were come to come to know God, the Christian argued, it must be through something God himself does, not man. But God did so intervene in the nature he had or had he created but did God so intervene in the nature he had created? The old man directed his student to the Jewish scriptures. Justin plunged into them, devouring them so diligently he could recite them chapter and verse for the rest of his life. But these alone did not bring him to conversion. Could the righteous God he found there somehow be somehow represented on earth by these dreadful Christians about whom he had heard such repellent stories? Not very likely. Then, about the year 130, he saw a horrible but amazing sight that changed his mind. In the arena, he watched Christians die. I saw that they were afraid neither of death nor of anything else looked upon as terrible, he wrote. The sight gave birth to his faith. I concluded that it was impossible that they could be living in wickedness and pleasure. For if such were the goals of the Christians, why would they not perpetuate their pleasure and escape, escape death by offering the required sacrifice to the gods? He believed and became Christian. But Flavian, Flavia Neapolis had little challenge for this young, eager convert. He moved to Ephesus, the capital and Christian center of the province of Asia, where John the Apostle was said to have written the fourth gospel. Far from abandoning philosophy, Justin saw in it an opportunity for Christian evangelism and took full advantage of the spirit of free inquiry that prevailed wherever Greek influence had been felt. He opened a Christian philosophical school and strove to reconcile with Christianity the two philosophies he saw as closest to it. God, he concluded, had not confined the Jews to his intervention into the lives of his human creatures. He had influenced the Greeks as well. Thus, while the Hebrew prophets had begun to discern the truth, so too did Stoicism and Platonism. Meanwhile, instead of fleeing from conflict with the pagan world, he sought out opportunities to confront it, contradicting the theories of his pagan peers so effectively that they became worried and jealous. A record of one debate 
appears in the dialogue with Trifo. Trifo was a Hellenized Jew with whom Justin conducted a polite public debate at Ephesus in 135. For Justin, it was the combative opening bell. When Trifo introduces himself and requests the discussion of philosophy, Justin strikes immediately to the flaw the old man had shown, in his, shown him in philosophy. Why philosophy, he asks. Had not Plato himself observed that every philosophical proof must be stronger than the thing which is proved through it? Because the latter is inevitably dependent on the former? How, therefore, could human reason lead to a true perception of God, if God, the creator of the human mind, must be superior to it? How could you get as much out of philosophy as you could from your own Jewish lawgivers and prophets, he demands? For while through reason we could not find God, through the prophets and through Christ, God has found us and redeemed us. The fight was over in the first round. But Trifo no doubt knew that Justin's real target in this discourse was not philosophy at all, but the currently dangerous teachings of one Marcion, a bishop's son, expelled from his own congregation, it was said, for immorality, who taught that the god of the Jews was fickle, capricious, ignorant, despotic, and cruel, and inferior to the supreme god who is Jesus' father. Justin knew that the validity of Jesus much depended on the validity of the Jewish prophets who came before him. So he spoke as friend and strong supporter of the Jewish tradition. Confronted with pagan religions, however, Justin was not at all conciliatory. Plato must have been influenced by Christ in some fashion, he declared, even though Christ came later, and the Jewish prophets were Christ's forerunners too, but the pagan gods were demons, particularly those enshrined in myths that resembled the story of Jesus. Put into the heads of the ancient poets, they allowed opponents of Christianity to argue that Christ was the mere embellishment of a myth. Justin's reputation as a skilled defender of the faith soon spread to the Christians at Rome, who badly needed his help. Senior people in the imperial bureaucracy were once again becoming belligerent and menacing. The Emperor Hadrian's 21-year reign ended three years later after Justin's debate with Trifo. Like his predecessor Trajan, Hadrian was a wise, superstitious, statesmanlike, and no more ruthless than he needed to be. Unlike Trajan, he pronounced no oppressive measures against the Christians, in fact, he sent the directive uh, to the government of Asia, known as the Rescript of Hadrian, ordering instead of a, instead of crackdown on false informers. All charges against Christians must be thoroughly investigated, he ruled, and false accusations must entail a punishment. However, it was during Hadrian's reign that Telesphorus, listed by Catholic Christians as the seventh bishop of Rome after Peter, was arrested and executed. No record remains of either the charges or the manner of his execution. The one ancient account says his evangelical preaching was so successful that the numbers of his converts alarmed the authorities. In 135, Hadrian put down the Bar Kokhba rebellion and our outlawed circumcision and outlawed circumcision, an essential part of God's covenant with the Jews given to Abraham. Hadrian refrained from deifying himself, but instead declared his beloved and beautiful page boy. Antonius, a god, an action appalling to both Christian and Jew. Hadrian died miserably in 138 of an unidentified but chronically debilitating disease after three, after three attempted suicides. His successor and adopted son, Antoninus Pius, proved actively tolerant of Christians. Upon his accession, he revoked all Hadrian's outstanding death sentences repealed on behalf of the Jews the edict against circumcision, and directed local authorities in Asia to treat Christians with tolerance. 
However, many of the new emperor's senior administrators did not share this benign attitude toward Christianity, thanks especially to Fronto's mon monstrous depictions of Christian rituals. By 150, the attitude to Christianity had hardened among Fronto and his colleagues because of rumors that the sect's uh, orgiastic activities were growing even worse. And this was easily explained. After the execution of Bis Bishop Telesphorus by Hadrian, the Roman Church was rapidly infiltrated by Gnostic teachers whose belief in the meaninglessness of material, uh, the material world led them in either of two opposite directions, asceticism or debauchery. That is, either they rejected the lures of sex as unreal and therefore worthless, or surrendered to them because they were unreal and therefore harmless. It was the latter group that caused the scandal, perhaps occasionally Fronto's much-published fulmination against the Christians, known as Fronto's Oration probably during his consul consulship in 143. It runs deeply into the lurid. They recognized one another by secret marks and signs, and they continue and they enjoyed mutual love almost before they meet. Here and there among them is a spread a certain cult of lust, so that they promiscuously call one another brother and sister, so that their frequent fornication becomes, by the use of the sacred name, incest. Thus, their vain and insane superstition glories in its crime, Unless there is a, there were a foundation of truth, wise rumor would not speak of these wicked matters, rightly supposed. I hear that they worship the head of the most disgusting animal, consecrated by some stupid conviction or other. Their religion was born worthy of such customs. Others say they worship the genitals of their leader and priest, and, so to speak, adore their own source. This may be erroneous, but certainly the suspicion would arise in their secret nocturnal rites. And anyone who tells of a man's tells of a man paying the supreme penalty for his crime and the deadly wood of the cross of their ceremonies attributes suitable altars to those depraved criminals. They worship what they deserve. The story of their initiating novices as detestable as it is notorious. An infant concealed in meal so as to deceive the unwary is placed before one of the those who is in charge of the rites. This infant hidden under the meal is struck by the novice who thinks he is striking harmless blows but kills him with blind and hidden wounds. Horrible to relate, they drink this drink his blood, eagerly distribute his the members of his body, and are united by the sacrifice and pledged to common silence by this awareness of guilt. This diatribe, coming as it did from a source so close to the Empire's highest authority, left the Christians horrified. Thus the urgent call from Rome for the help of man they heard so much about at Ephesus. Justin's arrival at the capital can be reconstructed. He would have landed at the port of Austria, Ostia and, full of expectation and foreboding, walked the 14 miles of the city. He would at last behold the great sights of a place whose magnificence he had heard described all his life. He knew, too, that Rome was the home of moral turpitude into which one could gradually and unconsciously slide and never return. Either way, Rome was the nexus of the greatest empire mankind had ever known, a metropolis more dominant in its days then it would then would be Louis the Fourteenth's Paris, Queen Victoria's London, or the Moscow of the Tsars and the Commissars. It was home to the best and the brightest of all the world's talents, and its citizenry gloried in their dominance. There before him were the city's celebrated seven hills, dotted with the brightly colored palaces of the imperial family and the mansions of the two or three thousand members of the patrician class. He would perhaps pause and confer a few coins on the beggars. Who frequented the twin door Ostian Gate, which took him through the six hundred year old Serbian wall. 
Now appeared before him the tomb of Cestus, a massive marble, massive marble-faced pyramid, more than a century old, and beyond it the crowded, narrow, but mathematically aligned streets of the city, redesigned by Nero after the great fire of AD 64, which he had blamed on the Christians. Passing beneath row after row of six or seven story tenements, homes for the most of the city's and million inhabitants, one quickly learned to avoid the garbage heaved out the upper story windows. So many slaves and freedmen, drawn from all over Italy, Greece, and Gaul, had poured into Rome that a new wall would soon be built to let the city expand. In the meantime, even unlit cellars, garrets, and the tiny spaces under stairways were rented out. In defiance of building codes, apartments were expanded to dangerous heights, propped against each other with buttresses extended across streets that did not prevent the frequent, frequent thunderous collapse of brick, wood, and mortar into piles of rubble and screaming victims. Despite the lessons of the Great Fire, such buildings were still sub subject to frequent conflagrations. With charcoal braziers heating most apartments, Sparks could alight on furniture or fabric, and fire easily spread along narrow streets crowded with tradesmen's wares, pedestrians, and litters bearing the wealthy. The firefighting corps now consisted of 7,000 freedmen quartered in 21 stations throughout the city and trained in the use of pumps and vinegar-soaked blankets to douse fires. These crews doubled as the city's night watch, aiming to catch thieves in the act, as well as to douse fires before they spread. To patrol the daytime streets, a police department of 3,000 men was organized on military lines. Rome's great buildings and monuments would have deeply stirred Justin. In the city center, a hollow between its seven hills, Augustus had begun erecting what became the city's are the most palatial metropolis the world would ever know. I found Rome a city of brick and left one of marble, Augustus declared. He and his successors built or rebuilt the Forum, the Senate, the Hall of Records, temples to Venus and Peace, Pompeii's Theater, the Colosseum, the Circus Maximus, the bronze-roofed Forum of Trajan, and the huge public baths. These were all relatively new works, and more were going up every day. This, then, was the city whose senior authorities frowned fiercely upon its tiny Christian minority. Why, these officials continually asked themselves, why do people join this sect? With all that Rome had to offer, what was the appeal of this crucified Jew? Why were there so many abandoning the gods of a city that had accomplished more than any other in human history? Did not Venus, the goddess of lust, for instance, offer them all the possible rewards of sexual satisf satisfaction? But these rewards, many found, were momentary, enjoyable, and then gone, the constantly requiring of ever more perverse to sustain such joys as she provided. What of Apollo? What of Mercury? What of Diana, goddess of the hunt? But the enchanting stories of these assorted beings, fascinating though they still were to children, had long ago paled, and anyone, anyway, could, who could actually believe them? The gods, like humanity themselves, seemed chained to a great wheel from which there was no escape. The 20th century philosopher, Mircea Eliade, would call his futility the myth of the eternal return. Ancient polytheism, he said, suffered two disastrous blows. The first came in with Abraham and his monotheism, the second with Christ, who promised the personal relationship with God, forgiveness of sins, and a concept of history in which the individual choices would change the world. It was a message that for more and more people would prove irresistible. 
Not, though, in the early 2nd century, says the historian W.H.C. Friend, when the Christian numbers grew chiefly from within. The reason was not mysterious. It was a campaign of vilification waged relentlessly against them. Though the change charges were grossly untrue, the Christians themselves, by their reluctance to respond, seemed to confirm them. Had not Christ himself commanded them to turn the other cheek? Luke, uh, in Luke 6, 29. And anyway, what did these ravings matter? Many Christians reasoned, because Jesus would soon return. But Jesus did not return, and as that hope grew fainter, members of a younger Christian generation, sometimes raised in the faith from infancy, sometimes converted from the pagan world, sought to fight back, to engage their enemies in dialogue, in public debate, even in name-calling and counter-accusation. These became known as apologists. The term's English meaning has come to be reversed over the years. It now refers to those who ask for pardon. But the Christians of the second century, age of the apologists, were not seeking pardon. They were explaining, driving home a point. A first and most forceful among them was Justin. When Justin arrived in Rome, his first assignment was to rebuke the attack made by Fronto. He did this with a document that came to be known as the First Apology. It petitions Antoninus and his adopted sons, Marcus Aurelius and Lucius Verus, to make a proper investigation rather than condemn the Christians on the basis of gossip. We demand that the accusations against them, the Christians, be probed, and if these be shown to be true, they be punished, wrote Justin, as any guilty person should be. If, however, no one has any way of proving these accusations, sane reason does not allow that you, because of a mischievous rumor, that would do an injustice to innocent men. Why, he asked, was officialdom's crackdown focused only on Christians? Why not Gnostics, like the followers of Simon Magus? Why not those who preach outright blasphemy, like the Marcionites? You neither molest nor execute them, at least not for their beliefs. Those who follow those teachings are not checked by you. On the contrary, you bestow rewards and honors on them. As to the charge that Christians were not loyal subjects of the empire, emperor, this was far from the truth. When you hear that we looked forward to a kingdom, you rashly assume that we speak of a human kingdom, whereas we mean a kingdom which is with God. We, more than all other men, are truly your helpers and allies in fostering peace. As we have been instructed by him, we, before all others, try everywhere to pay your appointed officials the ordinary and special taxes. It was true, he said, that we do not worship with many sacrifices and floral offerings to the things men have made, lifeless things set in temples and called gods. But that was because Christians worshipped the only true God. In other things we joyfully obey you, acknowledging you as king and rulers of men, and praying that you may have may be found to have, besides royal power, sound judgment. judgment. No matter what had falsely said about them, those who followed Christ's teaching turned away from evil actions, he said. For example, they cherished marital fidelity. Not only he who does commit adultery, but also he who wishes to do so, is repudiated by God, since not only our actions, but even our inner thoughts, are manifest to him. Even divorce was frowned upon. All who contract a second marriage according to the human law are sinners in the eyes of our master. But the fact is, he said, that Christians came to call to repentance, not just the pure, uh, but the impious, the incontinent, and the unjust. Those who followed Christ found their lives inexplicably transformed. Their former burning love of evil turned to good. We who delighted in war, in the slaughter of one another, and in every other kind of iniquity, have in every part of the world 
converted our weapons of war into implements of peace, our swords into plowshares, our spears into farmer's tools, and we cultivate piety, justice, brotherly charity, faith, and hope. How official them reacted to Justin's petition is not known. Antoninus Pius called off the persecution of Christians, however, and some historians suspect that Justin's appeal to Rome, and Rome's deep respect for justice, had produced the inquiry he thought he sought. And the new Antoninus policy was the outcome. Far more significant, however, Justin had demonstrated an aggressive new fearlessness in the Christian community, a willingness to bear, to bear the imperial lion in its den. Close behind him, other apologists would soon follow his example. As he had at Ephesus, he set up a school at Rome. It was in his apartment, above the Timiotinian baths, where he taught philosophy for his living and preached Christianity gratis. As John the Apostle had back in Ephesus, he doubtless took his message into the baths themselves. Why such, such, such a superb opportunity for debate, discussion, and the proclama proclamation of the faith be a field abandoned to the enemy? From his apartment, too, he poured forth his letters and papers in defense and furtherance of the Christian gospel. Here again, Justin rapidly gained note as a sharp debater and eagerly threw himself into confrontations with those who opposed Christianity. As well as friends, this made him enemies, one in particular. The man's name was Crescens, a distinguished cynic philosopher, philosopher humiliated by Justin in public encounters. Even Antoninus Pius, mortifying such a highly placed representative of authority, was dangerous. When Antoninus died in 161, it became lethal. Crescens had tried before and failed to have Justin arrested as a Christian, bringing the same charge against him that had successfully produced the execution of Ptolemaeus. According to one of Justin's pupils, a man named Tatian, Justin, uh, Justin had foiled the attempt by showing Crescens himself to be immoral, greedy, gluttonous, and insincere in debate, though Tatian's view of the case may not be unbiased. Justin greeted the emperor, Marcus Aurelius, with his second apology. This more urgent than the first, and more specific on the lapses of Rome's sense of justice. The Ptolemaeus case is cited, and Crescens unflatteringly mentioned. Finally, the second apology is diplomatically imbued with the language of the Stoics. For the new emperor was known to be one of those. In it, Justin again asked that the Christians be tried for specific crimes rather than for their beliefs. Whether Marcus ever saw this document is not known. What is known is that sometime after it was published, Justin was arrested. The informer, said the Christians, was Crescens, and the occasion was a cataclysmic plague. In the Christians' first big schism, they and the Jews part company. With the temple and Jerusalem gone, rabbinical Judaism rises into being and a struggle with Christianity begins what will rage on for centuries. Nearly a thousand years before Western and Eastern Christians parted them in bitterness, 15 centuries before Roman Catholics and Protestants divided, and even longer before the Protestants themselves splintered into countless denominations, the first and most painful division of them all rocked Christianity to its core. It would fiercely separate the Christians and their earliest brothers, the Jews. The Jews and Christians had, after all, sprung from the same root. As third-generation Hebrew Christian writer Jacob Jokes, Jokes observes in his book-length study of the controversy, The Jewish People and Jesus Christ, Jokes, Jokes, a prominent 20th century Messianic Jewish theologian, 
writes, The parting of the road between the Messianic movement and Judaism began upon Jewish soil as a result of a religious controversy between Jews and Jews. Put simply, the first Christians were Jews, as was Jesus himself. Jesus was born into a Jewish family, growing up with Jewish faith and life and customs, studying at Hebrew, the Hebrew Bible, observing Jewish law, and accepting it as divinely appointed. His disciples were Jewish. His ministry was carried out almost exclusively among the Jews, and the first church in Jerusalem was a Jewish church. Jesus was welcomed in the Jewish synagogues where he worshipped and preached. The eager crowds that surrounded him were overwhelmingly Jewish. The devoted multitude following him as he made his way to the cross was largely faithful Jews, weeping in sorrow. Many Jewish people showed themselves deeply devoted to him. What happened? The Jews were his blood relatives, his family in the strictest sense of the word, and it was to them, he said, that he had been sent. But he would come to be seen by his own people as an enemy, his name a curse, his, re his teachings reviled or, worse, utterly ignored. One common view explains Jesus' persecution in political terms. He was a rabble-rouser, a threat to Rome as much as to Judaism. But Jocks notes that Jesus remained aloof from political issues, except for his startling advice that a man should render under Caesar, that is the government, what the government was, was owed debt to God was a separate issue. Another popular explanation blames the division between, between Christians and Jews on the Apostle Paul. Jesus' message was welcomed by Jews of his time, this claim goes, but Paul turned it into something else, something that Jesus never intended and the Jews could no longer accept. That theory, however, ignores significant facts among them uh, the crucifixion itself, which took place long before Paul's arrival on the screen as well as the heavy persecution of the Christians immediately following Jesus' death. Jewish leaders were already working hard to root them out, rounding them up and killing them, with the as-yet-unconverted Saul leading the charge. Such persecution was inevitable, Jocks declares, because Jesus' claim to be the Messiah demanded a response. Either he was right, and the only response was to submit to him, or he was wrong and a blasphemer. The Jews declared him wrong. According to Jocks, Christianity begins with humanity in crisis, helpless to act on its own behalf, while central to Judaism is the assertion of human strength. It's a basic difference in the understanding of mankind's biggest problem, Jocks says, and the terrible division was therefore inevitable. But the Christians were only part of the Jews' dilemma. Without their religion, the Jews had no history, and without their history, no religion, writes the scholar Alfred Edersheim of the life and times of Jesus the Messiah? How could a religion rooted in specific geographical location and structure, Jerusalem and the Temple, both now destroyed, survive with its heart, so to speak, ripped out? This they answered by addressing two vexing problems. First, they quickly dealt with the troublesome presence of those Christians who continued to attend Jewish religious observances and to argue forcefully that the, that the new faith, that, the, that there is that there, argue forcefully there for the new faith. In about AD 85, the Burkat Harmonim was added to the 12th of 18 benedictions recited daily in the synagogues. In its earliest form, the Burkat Harmonim was a single sentence calling down a specific curse upon Christians. May the Nazarene and the Minim, heretics, perish as in, the, as in a moment and be blotted out from the book of life 
and with the righteous may they not, may they not be inscribed. Though by medieval times the tax would be softened and directed against undefined slanderers, its initial impact was profound, John writes. The Jews agreed that if any should confess him, Jesus, to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. The separation, of course, had been two-way street from the beginning, with many of the earliest Christians distancing themselves from the Jews. Their second task was to refashion out of a temple-based, sacrificially-centered faith one that could survive its grievous loss. A pattern, of course, had already been set into the synagogues of the diaspora, functioning far from Jerusalem. But these had already always been subsidiary to the temple and the holy city. The Mishnah, a collection of oral traditions and teachings of the rabbis, emerged in about AD 200 in Palestine under Rabbi Judah, called the Prince, and helped resolve the dilemma. In the Mishnah, the core of what would become the Talmud in the 5th and 6th centuries, Judaism shifts its focus from the temple to the synagogue, and therefore to the dispersion, dispersed nation of Israel itself. Similarly, Yohanan ben Zakkai, a 1st century scholar of the Torah, or written law, taught that study of the Torah, wherever undertaken, was as valuable and important as sacrifices in the temple as sacrifices in the temple had been. Another scholar, Gamaliel of Jemnia, head of the Sanhedrin after Jerusalem was destroyed, established uniform rites of worship and a standardized calendar for religious observances, which were to take place thenceforth in synagogues, no matter where they were. By the end of the first century, Christians were actively competing with Jews for Gentile converts, each side hurling increasingly vehement abuse against the other. The pagan philosopher Celsus, who was opposed to them both, recorded the Jewish explanation of Jesus. He was born, they said, the illegitimate child of a Jewish peasant woman and a Roman soldier named Panthera, the woman having been divorced by her husband, a carpenter, carpenter for adultery. When grown, Jesus emigrated to Egypt, worked as a laborer, learned magic, and returned to his own country, cocky, conceited, and proclaiming himself to be God. His supposed miracles were never authenticated, his prophecies were provided, proved false, and in the end, God abandoned him and let him die on the cross. His disciples stole his body and pretended he had risen from the dead. Such was the Jewish story. Moreover, observes the historian W.H.C. Friend in his Martyrdom and Persecution of the Early Church, the Jews had all the advantages of wealth, lawful status, a coherent religious sense, and revolutionary appeal to dissatisfied provincials. However, these were nullified by one fact. Judaism remained a national cult, protected indeed by its claim to antiquity, but repellent to most non-Jews. Nevertheless, Judaism endured, and in the two millennia that followed, Christianity and Judaism would grow independently, acknowledging and bewailing, but often nevertheless exacerbating, the deep wounds separating the two great faiths. Having already devastated the eastern provinces, this cataclysmic plague reached Rome itself in 166, and the emperor delayed his departure for the Danube frontier because he considered the plague a greater danger than the barbarians. He ordered preparations begun for sacrifices to appease the gods, preparations in which all Romans were ex expected to participate. The Christians once again refused, some seeing the plague as a sure sign that the end times had arrived. The response was public outrage. People whose families were dying around them viewed the Christians as the cause. How could these fanatics let their let little children die, they asked. 
through their insane loyalty to this crucified Jew. Starting in the eastern provinces, mob vengeance broke out. The martyrdoms began and, the spread, and then spread west. The prime target in Rome was this time not the bishop. It was that glib-tongued, smart Alec Justin, as his enemies no doubt saw him, so fast with an answer, so quick to put people down. Let's have him to the arena. Justin was arrested along with six of his pupils, one of them a woman. Tatian, who wasn't among them arrested, named Crescens as the accuser, but many historians doubt this. Justin scarcely needed an accuser. His Christian convictions had been everywhere uh, published. In any event, informers were no longer hard to find. Marcus Aurelius had already reinstated them as legitimate servants of the empire. The judge would be Junius Rusticus, chief magistrate of Rome and a confidant of Marcus. A brief transcript of the trial was preserved by the Christians. Short as it is, it may represent all there was to report of the proceedings, since Christians were usually willing to convict themselves. Thus, Rusticus asked, What are the doctrines that you, pre that you practice? I have tried to become acquainted with all doctrines, Justin replied, but I have committed myself to the true doctrines of the Christians, even though they may not please those who hold false beliefs. To the prefect, such a response bordered on outright defiance. Are these the doctrines that you prefer? He asked, providing Justin with an opportunity to equivocate. Justin rejected it. Yes, he replied. All, he believed with all Christians in the God whom alone we hold to be craftsmen of the whole world, and in Jesus Christ his Son, also God, who came down to mankind as a herald of salvation, as foretold by the Hebrew prophets. The language of what would become known as the Apostles' Creed was already taking shape. But Rusticus had heard enough, enough to convict anyway, and he cut Justin short. Still, there was a chance he might implicate the others. Where do you meet? he asked. Justin saw the peril and answered evasively. Wherever it is in each one's preference or opportunity, he replied, adding derisively, In any case, do you suppose we can all meet in the same place? Impatiently, Rusticus repeated the question. Justin explained that he held classes in his apartment above the baths, where he had lived his entire time in Rome. Rusticus gave up. Justin would implicate himself, but not the others. You do admit, then, that you are a Christian, Rusticus said. Yes, I am, replied Justin, assuring his doom. Rusticus now turned to a man named Cheriton, who quickly incriminated himself. His sister Cherito was given the chance to blame her friends for deceiving her. Had she been duped into taking part in the rumored promiscuity of the Christians? She had not been deceived, and there was no promiscuity, she said. Rather, I have become God's servant and a Christian, and by his power I have kept myself pure and sustained by the taints of the flesh. She, too, was convicted. After her, her Herex, Paeon, Evopestus and Valerian all readily confessed themselves Christians since childhood. Rusticus did not immediately pass sentence. He sent all seven back to prison, giving them time to reconsider their confessions. Therefore, uh, they were there uh, probably visited by other Christians, for the persecutions at this stage were still highly selective. How long the reprieve lasted is not recorded, but Rusticus was not known as a patient man. He again called the prisoners before him, this time threatening them with scourging or beheading. Do you suppose, he asked Justin incredulously, that you, be, that you will really ascend into heaven? I do not merely suppose it, he replied. I know it certainly. He then gave all seven one last chance. Since this then is your statement, impious ones, 
Let us proceed to the issue that is before us. Agree together to sacrifice to the gods, lest you be miserably destroyed. For what person of intelligence would choose to relinquish this sweetest light and prefer death to it? Justin took up the challenge and brazenly defied him. And what person of sound mind, he responded, would choose to turn from piety to impiety, from light to darkness, and from the living God to soul-destroying demons? Unless you sacrifice, I shall begin the tortures, Rusticus warned. This we long for, came the reply, and this will grant us great freedom at the terrible tribunal of Christ, which each of us shall receive according to his deeds, and so do what you will. We are Christians and do not sacrifice to idols. Rusticus ordered them lashed, no light penalty. One danger of Roman flogging was that the prisoner might die under it, cheating the executioner, whose work often followed. When Charito was flogged with the men, uh, whether Charito was flogged with the men is not recorded. Would they now make the required sacrifice? One by one, they answered that they would not. Thereupon, Rusticus passed the sentence. I decree, he intoned, that those who have defied the imperial edicts and have refused to sacrifice to the gods are to be beheaded with the sword. In the account preserved by the Christians, Rusticus is described as a terrible man, a plague, and filled with all impiety. The Roman mob no doubt took a very different view, denouncing him for irresolute vacillation. Why did he give them the opportunity to recant? And why just the sword? Why not the arena? No description of the execution survives. The date is set as approximately 165. In the annals of the Christians, Justin is remembered as the Justin as Justin Martyr. Martyrs he and his students certainly were, and as martyrs, they want us to be they want to be remembered. But Justin did something more. How deeply he touched us, writes the historian Henry Daniel Rops in The Church of the Apostles and, uh, and Martyrs. This man who groped in the dark for so long for the way, the truth, and the life. But in Christ, Justin found all three, and in doing so, he made it possible to see the whole course of Christian thought as thoroughly within the tradition founded by Plato. He fused the heritage of Greece with that of the Jews, and thereby helped to lay the foundations for what would one day be known as Western culture. Moreover, while Christians would argue for centuries over whether and when they should take up arms to defend the truth, Justin unequivocally showed them that they have no they have need have no qualms whatever about defending it with words. Words were weapons too, and Christians should learn to use them with all the skill God had conferred upon them.